Welcome to the show, Russell. Hi, Frank. Nice, nice to join you. I uh, become aware of you back in 2014 when I listened to the Brian Callen show. And at the same time, we also had a TED talk, Russell. <laughs> and you said on the uh, earlier here that uh, before we started recording that that was the worst event you ever did. <laughs> Do you remember the it TED talk? It was by far the most terrifying. Yes, because most of the time, of course, you know, you're a voiceover to your slides, which are somewhere, you know, the other side of the room. And 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 until I actually started looking at the TED talks, I I, I hadn't realised that you know essentially the camera looks at you, and and I found that quite uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I, I and it's a different way of communicating information. It's it's very much more of a performance rather than a sort of a lecture. And and so. I, I remember that um, I was very uneasy about this, and and of course the tickets for these these events are extremely expensive, and uh, they give you a free one. And uh, my wife was quite keen to come along, and I said, "Look, I'm sorry, I, I just don't want you in the audience because if this thing goes horribly wrong, I do not want you pitying me for the rest of our lives together." Um, and and so so my poor old Lizzie did not come, and uh, and it seemed to go okay. So it was uh, me being overly anxious. I'm <laughs> And I'm and I'm so glad that you did the TED talk, uh, Russell, because it's educated it's, a lot it's a lot of amazing. people. I, I, and I think that's been the really exciting thing because it, it has it reached, I believe, well over six million people now. And, and I think it just reflects the fact wow. that, I mean, nobody knows who the hell I am. <laughs> so it just reflects that, you know, it's not as though I'm Desmond Tutu. I mean, people are <laughs> tuning in because of the, the information rather than, than, than the sort of the, the, the performer. And so I think that's actually very exciting. And we're very curious about sleep, uh, Russell. But before we get yes. into our sleep, I wanted to ask you about uh, blind people. Because uh, in your research, you found out something about the corner of the eye. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's been an incredibly exciting bit of the research we've we've done, and and it really goes back to the right at the end of the eighties and the and the beginning of the of the nineteen nineties, and we started by asking a, just a really straightforward question. You know, we have an internal body clock which ticks away, but and and it, and it fine tunes every aspect of our physiology and, and behavior to the varying demands of the twenty four hour day, the the the, the, the light dark cycle. But for that clock to be of any use at all, it has to be set to the external world. And, and of course, the classic mismatch between the internal day and the external world is jet lag. And eventually you, you, get, you get over jet lag because you are exposed to the new light-dark cycle in the new environment. And the clock then locks on. It either gets dragged forward or back, uh, depending whether you've traveled east or west. But the thing that puzzled us, we knew that the eye in mammals was detecting this light. But, but the thing that puzzled us is the fact that the, 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 the visual system, mediated, of course, by the receptors in the eye, the rods and the cones, they have to grab light in a fraction of a second and essentially build up an image of our world. And, and uh, it, it's a very, very quick event. Uh, if it wasn't, then, you know, we, we would move through our environment and it would be like a great big sort of visual smear. The clock needs um, uh, a long period of light exposure. It needs it needs an overall impression of the amount of light at dawn and dusk. And and at, back then we couldn't understand how the eye was doing both sensory tasks. And so we started working on mice with hereditary retinal disorders, disorders whereby the classical visual cells, the rods and cones, had largely but not completely broken down. And these mice were visually blind. They had no visual responses. And what we showed is that 
much to our amazement, is that their ability to regulate their clock to the light-dark cycle was entirely unaffected. Uh, so, so this was really exciting, and you know, uh, we, we proposed fairly early on that maybe the eye has another light sensor, you know, something else. And uh, when we proposed this, uh, it was met with incredible opposition. <laughs> Uh, and, and of course, you know, I think I had the, had the courage to, to, to propose it when I was still quite young. Um, and, and, and that's quite important because I think once you're young, you do have more courage. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and the opposition was, you know, you, you know, you young pup, what arrogance. <laughs> uh, uh, we've been studying the eye for 150 years. Are you seriously telling us uh, we've missed an entire class of light sensitive cell in the eye? You, you must be joking. Um, and, and of course, you know, back then I said, yes, uh, I, I think there's another receptor, but actually in fairness to them, we hadn't done the definitive studies because those early studies, there were still a few of the visual cells, the rods and cones left in those eyes. And so what we then had to do was genetically engineer uh, a mouse so that all of those cells were turned off and to our intense excitement with all of the rods and cones turned off uh, you these mice would still regulate their their body clock to the external world uh, and we knew it was the eye because if you stop light getting to the eye then uh, this ability had gone and the clock would keep on ticking but it would then drift through time completely oblivious of the external light dark cycle wow. So uh, that was that was amazingly exciting. There had to be a third unknown receptor system within the eye. Uh, what is it? Well, we then uh, were able to show that in mice, this is based upon uh, a small number of ganglion cells in the retina. Now, the, the ganglion cells are sort of the outer bit of the retina, and they're the cells whose axons form the optic nerve. So that great big fiber tract that goes into the brain is made from the projections from the ganglion cells. And we showed that about one out of every hundred of those ganglion cells is directly light sensitive. So they then, be called, then, then we called them photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Um, David Burson was able to show this in the rat in the United States. And another group in the States also sh showed that primates, monkeys, also had these light sensitive ganglion cells. But the next question is, well, what about humans? Are we like mice? <laughs> Um, and we are in lots of ways, but do we have these specialized cells as well? And we were able to study two individuals, two humans, uh, who had also very severe loss of the rods and cones. And in fact, it looked as though all of the rods and cones had been lost. And just like the mice, they could, these individuals could regulate their body clock uh, and, and a whole range of other light-detecting tasks. And, and what's turned out to be exciting about these cells is they're not only regulating the body clock and the sleep-wake systems, but they're also regulating a whole range of other light-detecting tasks, other brightness-detecting tasks. That's so critical. part of our pupil constriction. Yeah, part of our pupil constriction is being mediated by these results, our levels of alertness. So, you know, in a dim, dark lecture theater, you tend to fall asleep, irrespective of who's speaking. <laughs> but if you turn up the lights, you know, you, you increase the, the amount of alertness uh, uh, in the audience. Um, and so, so, as I say, humans are like mice. Uh, and then we were able to go on with one of our subjects and, and ask, well, do you have any sensation of light at all? And she said, absolutely not. I have no ability to de detect light for 
50 years. Now, of course, she had her eyes, but she had no ability to, 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 you know, to detect light. But we said, okay, well, well, just indulge us. Let's pretend you can detect light. What we're going to do is turn the lights on and off, and we just want you to, to say whether the lights were on or off. And she sort of said, well, there's no point in doing this because I can't detect light. <laughs> we said, yes, just, just bear with us. Let's just try it out. And we did the experiment, and she could always, when forced, in a sense, tell us when the lights were either on or off. And we did some other experiments which showed that it was these new receptors, these photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, that were mediating that sort of subconscious awareness of light. So it, it's turned out to be a, 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 you know, a completely unexpected and exciting finding. Not only is there a, a weird new receptor system in the eye that's regulating our sleep systems, our clock systems, but also doing a whole range of other light-detecting tasks. And, and so, you know, in 20 years, our understanding of what the eye is doing has been completely transformed. Uh, uh, do we produce D vitamins from those, uh, for those on the same cells and uh, receptors, uh, Russell? Uh, so what those receptors are essentially doing is is firing off light information to the brain and regulating directly a whole range of of, of brain activities. So, so our ability to synthesize vitamin D, for example, uh, is is very much via the skin, um, and that is a local uh, sort of biochemical uh, set of reactions. It's a good question, though, because people wondered whether you know photoreception by the skin and, and the production of vitamin D might be a way in which you could regulate the clock. But there's absolutely no evidence uh, of a non-eye uh, light detecting system. If you have no eyes. Then, then your body clock will continue to tick. Uh, but in humans, for example, we have a slightly longer body clock. It's sort of about 24 and a half hours. Um, you'll get up later and later and later each day. But it raises some also interesting questions, I think, in eye hospitals. So, so you know, uh, up until fairly recently, you go, uh, if you had a terrible uh, genetic disease whereby your rods and cones had been lost, uh, you would be told by your ophthalmologist, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do for you. That's it. And that's true for the visual system. Uh, But what they, until recently, wouldn't check is if those photosensitive retinal ganglion cells are still working. Mm. So like the mice, you can be visually blind, but not necessarily clock blind. And having shown that those receptors are still there and working, then the advice needs to be, look, seek out sufficient daytime light to make sure you can lock your internal clock onto the external world. And what, what's, I think, really transforming ophthalmology and eye hospital practice now is that, that um, ophthalmologists appreciate that the eye is not only the, the organ of space, it gives us our sense of, of where we are in the world, but it's also this window on time. Without an eye providing light-dark information to the clock, we, we live in a world that lacks time. So, as I say, the eye is the organ of both space and time. Uh, so for blind people, it's important to uh, not use glasses in the daytime then? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there has been a tendency to uh, ask uh, people with, with who are blind to wear dark glasses. Mm. Now, there are sometimes important clinical reasons for that because there's some evidence that you might speed up the, 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 um, the rate of, of loss of the rods and cones. But invariably, it's, it, the, that is not the argument. It's mainly for aesthetic reasons. Okay. Um, and so uh, unless there's a very good medical reason, uh, then the eyes should be exposed to enough light 
to uh, regulate the internal clock. And, and of course, there are individuals uh, who've lost those light-sensitive ganglion cells. Uh, and, and, and in fact, you know, you can have massive optic nerve damage and, and therefore the eye can fail to send any information to the brain. So you're both clock blind and visually blind. And what we've gone on to do is try and understand, uh, after the initial discovery of these cells, what we've been doing is to try and understand how those light signals change the the clock, the molecular clockwork in the brain, um, and 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 then uh, align the internal clockwork to the external day. And where we are at the moment is that we think we've got some really exciting new drugs, which we hope to test in humans fairly shortly, that can provide a pharmacological uh, mimic of 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 light. Uh, uh, on the on the clockwork. So there are individuals who, p particularly s sort of some of the soldiers, who've been um, uh, who've lost both of their eyes in, in ghastly ac uh, uh, conflicts in, in, in war zones, and other individuals who, as a result of genetic lesions, have no eyes. So there are anophthalmic individuals. Now at the moment, there's very little that you can do for those individuals. Uh, and so what we are hoping is that we can then give a drug at a particular time that will then interact with the molecular clockwork and set, and set it to the, the external world. So in a sense, fooling the clock that it's actually seen light. Uh, and, and so as I say, this is going to be a drug that will provide a pharmacological replacement for light. This must be awesome news. But... From what I can, oh, from yeah, what I, I think I think the potential is very exciting. From yeah. what I can understand, then, Russell, that means that uh, this uh, sensors is um, controlling the circadian rhythm. Is that correct? Yes, that's uh, correct. Yes, and, uh, and a range of other things too. Yeah, but what is the circadian rhythm, and why is it important to us? Okay, so so circadian rhythms are internally generated, twenty-four hour or near twenty-four hour. Uh, rhythmic changes in our physiology and our behavior. And what's turned out to be, a, again, an extraordinary discovery during the second half of the 20th century, really, is that, you know, everybody knew that we showed patterns of sleep and wake, but it was sort of basically assumed that these were just driven by the outside world. Um, and then it became clear that if you took humans or plants or any other sort of animal on Earth or, uh, and uh, left these individuals under constant conditions, let's say constant darkness or constant light, then you got 24-hour changes in physiology and behavior. You did? Uh, oh. In humans, for example, uh, you, can, you can go down to a deep, dark cave, constant light, constant temperature. You still see a sleep-wake cycle. You still see changes in, in physiology and behavior. And so it became clear that there must be an internal day. And what this internal day is doing is uh, fine-tuning physiology and behavior to the varying demands of activity and risk. So in anticipation of going to sleep, our blood pressure starts to drop, uh, levels of glucose in the blood start to drop, uh, and, and, we're, and the body is being put into a state that is preparing it for sleep. And at the other end of the day, of course, in anticipation of waking up in the morning, blood pressure starts to rise, glucose is re released into the circulation in anticipation of actually waking up. So at the time we do wake up, we are physiologically prepared for activity. Uh, and so, so there is this internal clock, and, it's, and as, as I say, it's, it's adapting us to the varying demands of activity and rest. Now, 
what is it made of? Uh, there is an area of the brain at the base of the brain, uh, and and it sits actually on right in the hypothalamus, basically where the optic nerves uh, go into the brain and fuse. Just above that sits about fifty thousand cells, which contain the master biological clock within the brain and it's a structure called the suprachiasmatic nuclei um, when that region of the brain is lost it's destroyed um, and so for example if you have a tumor a, a type of ca you know cancer in the hypothalamus and it wipes out that part of the brain then all patterns of 24-hour behavior are lost Ooh. so What's the clock made of? Well, one of the great triumphs, I think, of the past 20 years has been the discovery that a single cell, a single suprachiasmatic nuclei or SCN cell, isolated, put in a dish, will still show 24-hour um, patterns of electrical activity and, and, and synthesis of certain compounds. What? Which tells you that, that this clock is a subcellular molecular process. And what's become clear is that you've got a bunch of critical clock genes. They produce a message. The message is then translated into a protein. But then that protein uh, uh, forms a complex with other proteins it then goes back into the nucleus and actually turns off its own genes <laughs> those proteins are then degraded and then the genes can be turned on again so what you've got is a molecular feedback loop which essentially produces a 24-hour oscillation uh, of, of, of electrical activity which is then translated into the 24-hour rhythms in physiology and behavior so that's what we thought was the system for a very long period of time. The eye detects the light-dark cycle, then interacts with the molecular clockwork in the master clock within the brain. However, uh, Uli Schibler in Switzerland uh, discovered that there were clocks in lots of other cells within the body. And so, for example, if you take liver cells out and you isolate them in a dish, they will show a 24-hour oscillation for several cycles, and then they sort of damp out. And so our understanding of the circadian system has, has changed. Well, we thought that the master clock was sending out a signal imposing, forcing 24-hour patterns of activity on the rest of the body. Now we know that it's coordinating the activity of billions and billions of individual cellular oscillators which are organized throughout the organ systems of the body. So, so in a sense, you have this complete circadian network, not just a single clock in the brain, which is sort of how we used to think about it. That means that sleep is extremely important to us then, obviously. Sleep is incredible. Yeah, sleep is incredibly important, and, and sleep, of course, is immensely complicated. So, so the clock, what the clock is doing, the, the master clock, the SCN, is essentially time-stamping physiology and behavior, and it's telling the sleep systems, now is a good time to be awake, and now is a good time to be asleep. But in addition to that, you've got another process, which is perhaps the most intuitive part about sleep, which is the longer you've been awake, the greater the, the need for sleep, the greater the sleep pressure. And so what happens is the, the sleep pressure from the moment you wake in the morning builds up and up and up and up and up. Normally, you don't fall asleep in the middle of the day because the clock is saying, no, 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 you need to stay awake. You stay awake, stay awake. Even though the pressure can be quite high, the clock is, is overriding that pressure. 
And it only, it's only when, when you get towards the end of the day and the beginning of the sleep phase, the clock then says, yeah, now is probably a good time to go to sleep. And then the sleep pressure kicks in and then you start uh, a, a full consolidated um, sleep process. But of course, what sleep is, is the turning on and off of a huge mass of different neural circuits within the brain. Sleep is... Uh, essentially involves all the key neurotransmitter systems within the brain and multiple, multiple brain structures. In fact, sleep, the sleep-wake cycle, and, and, and if you like, consciousness and unconsciousness is a global brain event involving a massive and complex set of interactions. So, uh, back to the clock a little bit, Russell. That means that uh, in some way we are made uh, around this cl around this clock, it, it sounds like that for what you're yeah. explaining. And, 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 and so, so it, it, it's, it's quite interesting because there are morning types and evening types. Mm. Um, people that genuinely like to go to bed early and get up early. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and those that like to go to bed late and, and, and get up late. And part of that is because of subtle changes in some of the genes that make up the molecular clockwork. And of course, you inherit those genes from your parents. So in a sense... Um, by their contribution to our uh, genes, our parents are still telling us what time to go to bed and, and, and get up in the morning. Um, uh, and what's turned out again, I think, to be very interesting is that uh, some very specific changes in some of those clock genes have been linked to morningness and eveningness. So that's really? part of the explanation. Uh, but there's also developmental effects. So uh, as we age... Um, the sleep-wake timing also changes. So from the age of 10, there's a tendency to go to bed later and later and later. We tend to be more uh, owls. We tend to be delayed. And that peaks in males at around about the age of 21, 22, and in females about 19, uh, between 19 and 20. And, and then we start to shift to a slightly more morning position. So by the time we're in our late 50s and early 60s, we're getting up and going to bed at about the time we got up and went to bed when we were 10. But the difference between somebody in their late 50s, early 60s, and somebody in their late teens can be as much as two hours. So on average, and it changes a lot between individuals, but on average, um, uh, late teenagers and, and people in their early 20s like to go to bed and get up about two hours later than people in their late 50s, early 60s. So the school so, system so it, it it raises a really important issue. <clears throat> yeah, the, yeah. The school system. It, it raises... I'm, uh, yeah, well, it raises some important issues in terms of schools yeah. because in asking a, a, a teenager to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning is a bit like asking a 55-year-old to get up at um, uh, 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's, it, it's, you know, it's, that's, the, that's what we're asking our teenagers to do. And now the problem is that, that teenagers face yet another uh, whammy which is not only are they biologically predisposed to go to bed late and, and get up late, and of course that's, that's always been the, 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 the case for, for humans, but now with the fact that bedrooms uh, are no longer places of, of sleep, but also places of entertainment for teenagers, then there's social media, there's computers, there's gaming. And so unless these devices uh, are turned off, then they then interact with the biology and then make sleep even later. And in what been way, doing some studies on. In what way? Well, essentially, what's happening is that you're delaying the t going to going to bed e even later, and so what happens in teenagers is that that 
during the week, they're going to bed late, but the alarm clock, of course, is still driving them out of bed in the morning so they can get to school. So they're suffering hugely shortened sleep, which means that they're very tired when they go to sleep. And, and I was talking to some teenagers fairly recently, and many simply fall asleep for the first few hours um, in class. I mean, they're, either they're falling asleep or they're, they're, they're actually physically asleep. And, and the teachers, you know, it's, it's, they're being driven crazy. Um, and then, of course, you, 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 the, the kids are then oversleeping hugely at the weekend. They're you know, getting up at, in the middle of the afternoon. And so you've got this massive distortion, partly biology, but also because I don't think the teenagers realize how important sleep is. And there's so many other exciting things to do, social media, gaming and all the rest of it. And that then makes them go to bed even later. And the other thing, of course, is that many, many, many uh, teenagers will struggle through the day, they'll finish school, they'll get home, and then, of course, they may have a, a long nap of one or two hours. And that long nap will push back the sleep pressure. So they'll want to go to, go to bed even later that night. So, so napping can be an additional problem for teenagers, in addition to all the other things we've talked about. Um, some of the consequences, of course, uh, uh, for disrupted sleep in, in teenagers are, is the tendency to to use sedatives and stimulants. So much of the, of the waking day is being driven by, by high sugar, high caffeinated drinks, which, which keep them alert. Um, but the problem is that caffeine can stay in the body for a long period of time. And certainly if How you're long? drinking caffeinated drinks, well, uh, the half-life of caffeine is between five and nine hours. Ooh. So if you take you know, a rich, a strong caffeinated drink in the middle of the afternoon, it's almost certainly going to delay sleep at night. And then there's the tendency to say, well, I've got to get some sleep. What do I do? And then there's the use of sedatives. And that can be borrowing or stealing parental sleeping tablets, buying antihistamines, you know, the, the drowsy antihistamines mm. uh, from the pharmacist, or stealing or buying parental alcohol. Um, and, and the key thing, though, is that those drugs whether it's alcohol or, or sedatives, are exactly that. They're sedatives. They don't provide a biological mimic for sleep. So, in fact, you're actually disrupting some of the important things going on in the brain whilst we're asleep. So, so you're not only being sedated, but the brain isn't actually uh, 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 being allowed to do all the important stuff it does during sleep. The alarm clock wakes you up. You feel really groggy because you've had a sort of a, a sedative-induced sleep. You need more stimulants, more caffeinated drinks. That means that, you know, you need more sedatives at night. And this sort of stimulant-sedative feedback loop is, I think, you know, in, in, in becoming an important driver for, for many, many teenagers. I mean, I, I was most terrified when I, I first became aware of this as talking to a 13-year-old uh, young lady oh, four, five, maybe six years ago. And I said, you know, what's your sleep like? And she said, oh, it's fine. I said, this is wonderful. How, how do you manage that? And she said, oh, I just, I just take my mother's sleeping tablets. No, and there I is. Said, well, how, how do you feel? Yeah. And, and I said, how do you feel the next morning? She said, oh, it's not great. But after three Red Bulls, I can get going. <laughs> and here is a, you know, a developing plastic brain, you know, the most complicated structure in the known universe being driven by stimulants and sedatives at a formative time. Not and good. that worries me. I think it, yeah. That's not good at all. What, what, what happens to the body when we get too, too little sleep, uh, Russell? 
Yeah, it's it's, it's a very interesting uh, point. And again, it's some work that's just emerging really over the past 10, 15 years and, and being increasingly recognized. I suppose I'd, I'd categorize three levels of problems. The first a sort of short-term sleep disruption, which many of us, of course, have experienced, leads to uh, a failure to process information. So, so you're, you're not very good at laying down memory, uh, and and also you're not very good at um, coming up with those innovative solutions to complex problems, which is what sleep can hugely help you do. But also you. Um, fail to process information, you become more impulsive. So tired people do unreflective and more stupid things. You also lack empathy. You don't pick up the social signals in others. So, so you're not only, your brain isn't firing properly, but it's also not allowing you to interact optimally with the people that you know, you're working with or, 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 or sharing your lives with. So, so there's massive brain impairment. The second um, problem is is more sustained sleep disruption, um, which is what many many of us suffer. Not just night shift workers, but I think much of society is is, is chronically sleep deprived. We, you know, going back to teenagers, for example, Mary Caskerden at Brown University has suggested that you teenagers need about nine hours of sleep for full brain performance the next day. And many, many uh, students are getting maybe five, five and a half hours every night, which is just way not enough. Um, now, if that's sustained over years and years, then you can get um, a chronic sleep problems. And, and this is typical of, of night shift workers. Uh, so there there's evidence of metabolic abnormalities. So a higher frequency of diabetes too, um, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, greater rates of obesity, greater tendency to use stimulants and sedatives to try and regulate the sleep-wake cycle. There's also evidence that um, you can suppress the immune system and that suppression of the immune system may well account for the fact that long-term night shift workers have higher rates of cancer, and levels of infection. There's a famous study from Denmark uh, which has looked at long-term night shift nurses showing higher rates of colorectal cancer and breast cancer, um, factoring out all of the other sort of potential variables. So, so sustained sleep disruption, as we see in night shift workers, but for many individuals, uh, has been associated with a whole raft of physiological uh, uh, disruption. And the third area, which I think is very interesting and again increasingly recognized is that uh, sleep-wake disruption has also been correlated with levels of, uh, of mental illness. So depression, sleep-wake disruption seems to precede depression and what you also find in severe mental illness like schizophrenia is that in those individuals there's massive, huge sleep-wake disruption. Um, which seems to further sort of nudge individuals into a more severe and pathological state. We've got some studies um, led by my colleague uh, uh, um, in, in psychiatry here, here in Oxford. Uh, and what, what that study has shown is that if you can partially stabilize sleep-wake in patients with schizophrenia, you can reduce the levels of delusional paranoia by a very significant amount. So far more effective than any, any drug, you can actually just target sleep, try and stabilize sleep, and have a big impact upon the severity of the symptoms. So I think that's, that's also turning out to be very exciting. So 
so so I suppose the key point I would make is that that sleep is a time of of when the body is relatively immobile, but a time when really critical things are going on. So much of our daytime functioning is utterly dependent upon the quality of the sleep we had each night, our ability to think, our ability to interact with others, and our ability to regulate our physiology and behavior generally. I heard a Norwegian doctor say that, uh, and he's working with sleep patients, and he said uh, on the question for um, for um, for people working at night, he said that uh, if people work at night uh, day after day, and, and this becomes a pattern, the body regulates to this pattern. But from what I can understand, Russell, you are actually saying that this uh, rhythm is actually dependent on, on the light and not the rhythm. Well, that's the that's the key point because the assumption has always been that if you're doing long-term night shift work, the body adapts to the demands of working at night, mm. and all the evidence suggests that in most cases that is absolutely not the case uh, because of, of of the exposure to light. So you're working under relatively dim light conditions in the factory or the workplace at night, mm. then you're exposed to brighter natural daylight mm. during the day. And the body clock always defers to the brighter light signal as being daytime and will ignore that dim light at night. Um, and so, so what's happening with a night shift worker is that they are having to override all of their biology saying now is the time to be asleep. And we're perhaps the only species on the planet that can cognitively override this. And part of the way we do it seems to be by activating the stress axis and by sustained activation of the stress axis we can we can partially mask the fact that we need to sleep but of course long-term activation of the stress axis leads to long-term uh, problems of the sort we've discussed immune suppression cardiovascular disease hmm. metabolic abnormalities um, now one or two studies have shown that if you take night shift workers and you increase the amount of light in the factory to 2,000 lux or so. Uh, lux is a measure of brightness. Uh, and then hide individuals from natural light during the day. Then, just like getting over jet lag, they will eventually lock on to that particular light-dark cycle. So But that, possible. in many cases, is just not practical, yeah. And, and there's a group of, of, of workers in the North Sea, uh, on the North Sea oil platforms and this is some lovely work done by a colleague uh, a Josephina Rent and what she showed was that if those individuals on the night shift are, are, are basically out on the rigs under very bright light conditions uh, under under those big bright artificial lights and then during the day um, they're asleep in metal boxes with no windows so they will shift the problem with those individuals is that they've adapted beautifully to the night shift um, but then when they go home for their two weeks of shore leave, <laughs> they're, they're completely out of sync with their family and their friends, and they don't like that at all. <laughs> that, that's very understandable, actually. <laughs> yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. I mean, given the choice, you know, most people given the choice about wh when they want to feel um, uh, less than their best hmm. will be at work rather than at home um, when they're socializing with family. I'm curious about one thing, Russell. I've been thinking about one thing because I have a little uh, little son, and he's now uh, two years old, and mm -hmm. and he's waking up at night. And uh, as parents, we're getting uh, awakened yeah. quite yes. a bit. And are we as humans developed this way that that we, in some way, can adapt to? For, for I, I can I can feel that I can get away with less sleep now than before. <laughs> <laughs> 
So is this somewhere because well, we're caring about someone yeah. we can get away with their sleep or? There's, there's, you raise again some very interesting issues. We can, we'll go back to the development of the clock and the sleep-wake cycle in a moment and, 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 and children. Uh, one of the things that one has to be very aware of is, you know, you're saying you adapt. Well, actually, you, you invariably do not adapt. Uh, what yeah. happens is that the, the, the brain, when it's tired, becomes impaired. It doesn't function properly. And therefore, it cannot assess how impaired it is. And so it thinks things are fine, but actually they're not. And, and, you know, many taxi drivers, you know, you can say, how do you feel working on the night shift? They say, oh, it's no problem, I'm fine. If you bring them into the lab and you look at their ability to perform cognitive tasks or their reaction times or whatever, they're very, very impaired. And that's the key point. The brain is so impaired because it's tired, it can't assess how impaired it is. So it can be very, very dangerous it that's scary or frightening actually yeah yeah exactly and and of course you know this is part of the, the reason why the chances of having a road traffic accident are highest in the early hours of the morning accounting for um uh, 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 for, 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 for for traffic volume um you know a hundred thousand crashes on the american freeway every year are associated with people simply nodding off at the wheel because they don't know um, what's going on, and, and, and of course, it raises then a whole, you know, other, uh, you know, set of questions as well. What can we do about it? Mm. Um, and I think there are things we can do about it. First of all, uh, if if you uh, have to be a night shift worker, then it would make an awful lot of sense to map your body clock type, morning person or evening person, onto the type of night shift. So if you're a late person, then you should be doing late shifts. You mm. sh if you're a late person. You shouldn't be doing morning shifts. Mm. We should also be using technology to, to alert us. We said that the brain is impaired. So let's help the brain out by, by, by telling you you're, you're falling asleep. Now, the Canadian trucking industry, as I understand it, have got some nice devices, which is like a pair of spectacles that you wear, that can, that can tell you if you're nodding off to sleep. And so they can then uh, give the driver a, a warning that, look, you're falling asleep. Do something about it. And, and I understand some cars now, commercially available cars, can also uh, monitor whether you're, you're nodding off. So we can use technology. And, and I, sh I should stress, not simply in the workplace where you're likely to have an accident in the factory, let's say, but also on that incredibly dangerous period after the night shift when you're driving home. And of course, it's a very familiar road usually. Um, so you're not particularly alert. You're used to this particular drive and therefore um, you're much more likely to fall asleep. And so that's when we should be uh, uh, helping our night shift workers, uh, both in, in, in the workplace and driving home by using technology. Never Furthermore, I think and another really critical area is why don't we give our night shift workers the appropriate form of nutrition? Hmm. knowing that you're going to be uh, more likely to have obesity, diabetes 2, metabolic abnormalities, cardiovascular disease. What do we give our night shift workers to eat? Fast food, full of fat, full of sugar. It's about the worst <laughs> stuff available. And so this is where nutritionalists need to get involved and we can start to develop you know, some really uh, uh, important nutrition for our night shift workers to try and mitigate some of those, those problems. 
Um, so, so all is not lost. I mean, I, I, you know, as a society, we're, we're not going to put the 24-7 genie back in its bottle, but we can start to think of ways in which we can mitigate some of the problems. And, and I should also say, if you're a, a night shift worker, then you should have high frequency health checks to make sure that those problems as we've discussed, you know, can be caught early on and mm. something can be done about them. You're raising some questions oh. for me now, Russell, yeah? You said, oh, you <laughs> said, we, oh. <laughs> we, we're going to go back and we're going we to talk about you and your two-year-old. Um, so so it's, it's the, the development of the human sleep system, I, I think, is really interesting. Certainly for the first um, two to three months, the, the, the clock of, 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 of babies has not fully uh, organized itself properly so so first of all uh, it, 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 it's probably for a very good reason it, it, the, the baby needs lots of nutrition as, as much as possible during those first three months and so basically uh, it, a lot of the time it'll feed whenever it's hungry and so there isn't very much of a 24-hour structure but that 24-hour structure kicks in after about two to three months and then you know there's, there tends to be long periods of sleep now of course children we've all experienced this may wake up in the middle of the night um, and want comforting. Uh, and there's a tendency, of course, for parents to, to, to respond to that because, after all, that's what we're programmed to do. But then the child often learns that this is a great way of getting comfort um, uh, from one's parents. And so rather than self-comforting, then it'll, it'll, it'll cry uh, and, then, and then disturb the parents more. And, and that's a very difficult situation um the, the child probably doesn't need anything other than, than 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 comforting and so um a number of solutions are proposed you basically ignore the child and and as long as you've checked that it's okay and there's nothing distressing then you you know it, it then learns fairly quickly that it needs to um, comfort itself and then go back to sleep and stop dis despairing, uh, uh, um, disrupting the parents. But but I but I think we also need to put that kind of behaviour into a broader context. It's really worth emphasising that there's been a huge shift in our sort of social structure over the past 50, 60, 70 years. Um, we've gone to the, the the nuclear family where most families are just two parents and children. Um, whereas in up until fairly recently, there, we, we lived in extended families. So, so childcare now falls almost exclusively on just the parents and usually just one parent. Whereas previously there was an extended family, there may be elder siblings, there would be aunts, uncles, grandparents who would be living in close proximity who would share the childcare. And I think that, that many individuals, you know, feel that they have to do it all and they have to be a wonderful parent. Well, yeah, that's fantastic. But, but it's, it's a very abnormal situation uh, doing it simply on your own. It used to be a shared experience mm. and we've lost that because of the way we've, we've restructured our society. I'm very curious about something, uh, Russell. And, uh, and before we get uh, we got this uh, electrical lightning, did we have a different sleeping pattern? With with electric light, yes, uh, yes. That, before we got it is electric. very interesting. Yeah, uh, so there's uh, pretty good evidence that the the pattern that we had in the pre-industrial era of sleep uh, is it was somewhat different. Um, so there's studies 
which have suggested that humans had what's called a bimodal pattern of sleep, which means that uh, at around about dusk, there was a two-hour settling down of sort of quiet relaxation, a four-hour period of consolidated sleep. Then you'd wake up. You may wander around. You may interact with others in various ways. You then have another four hours of consolidated sleep and then a two-hour transition into wake. So, so it wasn't this sort of single relatively short block of sleep, but it was an extended block. And, and you see those patterns uh, in uh, a variety of societies today where there's no electric light. Um, so so it, we probably did have a different have pattern changed? of sleep. But of course, um, well, it, it, it's very, I mean, other studies by people like Tom Weir, for example, have taken people like you and I and placed us in uh, isolated, you know, rooms hmm. uh, with 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark, more or less. And we defer back to that bimodal pattern of sleep. Oh. So I think that, yeah, I think that the fact that we, we be, because we've invaded the night with electric light, we've, we've changed our, our sleep patterns rather significantly. Now, I should say that not everybody agrees with that argument. I, I am persuaded by that argument, but others would suggest that, for example, how can you say that in the past we had better sleep when there was sort of a family and, you know, five or six children all in the same bed? Hmm. Um, and I, I, and I, my response to that would be, sure, if you or I had to sleep in, under those circumstances, we wouldn't sleep very well. But it's what you're used to. Mm. Um, and if that's the environment in which you're used to sleeping, fact. then exactly. Yes. Um, so, so I, um, I, I mean, it's all part of it, the way that we have not prioritized sleep in, in what we do sleep for so long has been considered an indulgence and a luxury and a time when nothing much important is happening. But as we've discussed, um, the functioning of the daytime behavior is dependent upon a really good night of sleep. And I think we've got to educate ourselves so that we can reprioritize sleep in the way we think about we, the way we organize our lives. This is in the same way you'd never think of not cleaning your teeth or washing or all those sorts of um, personal hygiene things where we also now need to have good sleep hygiene as well. Uh, I'm curious about something else uh, here, uh, Russell. As I can wake up at uh, three or four uh, at night and be extremely creative. And I can be yeah. creative for two hours and I fell asleep again. Uh, why is that? Perfect, <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, well, that that it may well be that it's your throwback to your 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 natural, more natural, bimodal uh, pattern of sleep, uh, and and uh, it, it it's also worth bearing in mind that uh, during the first half of the sleep episode, um, it it seems that's when much of the memory consolidation and the processing of information is going on. So some beautiful studies by Jan Born in Germany have, have shown that a night of sleep can in hugely enhance your capacity to come up with solutions to complex problems. And it may well be that you're waking up after that first sleep episode yeah, where something that has been, you know, you know a, a, and you've actually started to process the information. You've woken up and you've seen it through to its, its, its wonderful and logical conclusion. And then you can switch back off <laughs> and then have another episode of sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it, it's interesting because the, the second half of the sleep episode 
is where we tend to have more dream sleep. Now, what dreams are, I think, is, remains a really interesting question. Uh, my view would be this is the brain trying to men- make sense of a very complicated world. Um, and and, and I've ana- the analogy I've made is it's a bit like um, a, a partially complete jigsaw puzzle. During the day, all these bits of a jigsaw puzzle have become you know, flying in. And during sleep, we try and make sense of that information by putting those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle into the partly formed puzzle that we already have. Now, many of the times, those, those pieces fit beautifully. But other times, the brain is trying to force those jigsaw pieces into the wrong part of the puzzle. And maybe that's why we, that's maybe what, what a strange and abnormal j- j- dream is. It's the, it's the way that the brain is trying to make sense of a super complicated world. It sounds logical. <laughs> well, yes, yes, whether it's true or not, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's logical. It may well have some logic to it, yeah. <laughs> yeah but I'm, I'm still a little bit curious about waking up now because... Uh, I try to have a very stable uh, sleeping pattern. So, uh, mm-hmm. for the last, uh, since actually since I heard your uh, podcast with Brian Callum back in 2014, I started to uh, go to bed at 10. And and, I, and I've done that since. Uh, so you've you've got you've you've tried to prioritize sleep, and you've developed a good sleep hygiene. Then, yeah, yeah, and. But I still, if I get uh, waken up by my son or if I wake up by myself, it's always about 3 or 4 a.m. And if I wake up, I yeah. can forget to fall asleep for the next one or two hours. So is that because mm-hmm. that we're building up this pressure? Bimodal pattern. Yeah. Oh, yes. Ah, oh, right. Yes. yes. That's a good point because uh, what's happened... And, it, and the, the, the effect of sleep pressure can vary enormously between individuals. So mm-hmm. it may well be that sleep pressure has dissipated quite a lot in you it's it's been pushed back and so you know you may you may wake up but although the clock is saying this is this is now a really important time uh for you to be asleep Mm. the sleep pressure may have gone away sufficiently to wake you up um and therefore you 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 wake for a period the sleep pressure builds up again the clock is still saying this is an important time to be asleep Mm. and then then you can go back to sleep i mean the really key point about waking up in the middle of the night and it sounds to me as though you've got it right is not to panic not to worry so many people wake up in the middle of the night thinking oh my god that's it i'm never going to get back to sleep <laughs> get you know, get really stressed start to have you know ca- strong caffeinated drinks mm. you know turn the lights on whatever and it chances are you will be able to go to sleep if you st- if you remain relaxed if you keep light exposure low mm. um and you don't do things that overstimulate you you said something about sleep hygiene uh, russell I, yeah. Can you please elaborate on that? Because I think a lot of people do not know what a good sleep hygiene is. Yeah. So, so I think that the first point to make is, is well, how, how much sleep do you need? Um, and this is a, a question we all ask ourselves. Mm. And, 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 and I think the answers are relatively straightforward. If you need an alarm clock to wake you up in the morning, if, you are, if it takes you a long time to wake up, uh, if you're feeling sluggish, you know, for for a good one or two hours in the morning, mm. um, if you need caffeinated drinks to wake you up in the morning, if you're feeling tired and grumpy, and your friends and family and your colleagues comment on this, uh, these are all you know signs that you're not getting enough sleep. And this is this is kind of 
fairly obvious stuff. If you crave a nap in the middle of the afternoon, uh, you're again, not getting enough sleep. So, so what do you do? Well, I think, oh, and if you're oversleeping during the weekend, um, that's also a classic sign that you're not getting enough sleep during the week. And so you need to reprioritize and stabilize uh, the way things uh, are, are going. So, so what can you do? Well, you need to assess how much sleep you need. If you're not getting enough, you need to try and go to bed earlier. Uh, but, but how do you put yourself in, into the sleep state? Well, you need to minimize light exposure for at least half an hour before you go to bed. You need to turn off the television. You need to turn off the, the social media, the emails, all of that kind of stuff. You need to do things that are relaxing, and that may well be reading a few pages of a novel. Um, it may well be um, listening to some music. But certainly, you need to get your your brain prepared for sleep. I mean, one of the things that always amazes me is that what's the last thing that most of us do before we go to bed? We stand in the most brightly lit room in the house, the bathroom, <laughs> staring it's into a hugely illuminated mirror, <laughs> cleaning our teeth. Well, you know, what that high level of light will do is increase alertness and delay sleep onset. Mm. So I've, I've always been puzzled why we don't have bathroom mirrors with, with, a, um, uh, with a dim light switch for the night um, uh, and, and a bright morning switch for the day because then that, 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 that when we wake up in the morning, we have that bright light which can help set the clock and, and also increase alertness. And of course, you do the opposite before you go to bed at night. Um, but, but, you know, it, it's the sort of stuff it, and advice that our grandparents would have told us. And, and in a sense, we've, we've just lost the, the sort of sensible, uh, 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 intuitive things that, mm. that, would, that would promote sleep. Um, there's so much else going on in our lives that we feel uh, that, that, that it, it, it needs to intrude. And, and as I said earlier, we don't recognize sleep as being such an incredibly important part of how we function during the day. It is not, it is not an indulgence or a luxury. It is absolutely essential to our well-being. So we it's all must about, take it seriously. So it's all about the habits, and I understand. Because uh, before Russell, I had, had problems with sleeping. I started to stretch. <clears throat> Every time I had problems with uh, falling asleep, I started stretching. And uh, what I realized is that my body, when it was uh, tense, I had so much problems sleeping. With it. I was stretching, I got, <laughs> I fell a lot, fell asleep a lot faster. And yes. from uh, from child on, I was almost always laying uh, awake for one or two hours. And then I started to listen to podcasts. And then I fell asleep yeah. in five minutes. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, that's presumably you use my one. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually. Not. <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, these are the sorts of things that... Uh, I mean, uh, I think it, there's huge individual variation. I mean, I've said turn off the television, do all this. For some people... Not many, but for some, having the radio on in the background mm. or the television on the background can help. Mm. It's rare, and you shouldn't do it as, as your first line of, of relaxation. <laughs> but for some first people, line of that, defense. That <laughs> yes. But, but, it, but, it, but it can be a great tool, and, and the stretching one is something I want to recommend for people having troubles with sleeping, yeah. because a lot of people, are, we are sedative, and we are sitting and we are having all these uh, sore necks and so on, so when you start to stretch, we're, yeah. we're getting more tired. And I have some more questions. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, one just but one other thing that is important is that um, some some nice studies have suggested also that uh, when we fall asleep, we, part of the physiology that's going on is a slight drop in in, in body temperature. So so we we lose about a degree of core body temperature um, uh, whilst we're asleep, and if you block that drop in core body temperature, it's more difficult to go off to sleep. And of course, um, it, it, if you uh, sort of inhabit an overly heated bedroom uh, where, where it's more difficult to lose that, 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 that temperature, um, then you can have problems getting off to sleep. So, so the bedroom, not only should it be dark, um, but it shouldn't be overly heated. It shouldn't be cold, but it should, have a, should be slightly cool. Ten degrees, um, so that you actually um, it, it will vary depending upon you know everybody's sort of slightly different, but but certainly it shouldn't be too warm. Um, and, and and it's interesting that that many people who have uh, for, for for various reasons cold hands and feet. So for example, a condition called Rayner's uh, syndrome or, or vasospastic disorder, whereby they have cold hands and feet because they can't dilate their blood vessels in their hands and feet so they get cold mm. they have problems getting off to sleep because they can't shunt blood from the core the center of the body out to the hands and the feet where they then lose that temperature and 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 people with cold hands and feet um have used bed socks and mittens and actually found it easier to go off to sleep so another trick, you know, it may not be very romantic, uh, but, 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 but socks and mittens um, could be one, one way, as I say, it may not be romantic, but it may help you sleep. <laughs> uh, uh, one other thing, uh, Russell, that caught my attention in that, in that podcast. You said something about uh, some food not to eat uh, late at night. And oh, yes. Kind of well, that's also a good point, uh, and and so so some, there's a couple of reasons for not uh, eating late at night. One is um, it's it's if you're having lots of food late at night, then it can get, obviously get the digestive system going, and that can that can in, interrupt. It can delay sleep just because of the mechanics of digestion. But some very interesting studies uh, uh, recently have compared eating in the morning versus eating late at night. So they gave people the same number of calories, um, but either concentrated in the first half of the day or concentrated in the second half of the day. And what's interesting is that the calories that were taken during the second half of the day um, prevented weight loss. And in fact, there was weight gain. So you tend to it's more difficult to lose calories. And if you're going to diet, for example, then uh, you, you can't do it very effectively if you're having all your calories um, uh, at the end of the day. So, 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 and of course, those, those calories at the end of the day have also been associated with uh, a greater tendency for diabetes 2 and metabolic abnormalities generally. Are there some food that we should not eat in the late evening? Well, I guess I guess uh, um, things that are difficult to digest um, uh, is, is, is not great. Um, <laughs> what's that? Steak? Yes, yeah, I mean steak. it would be. But, but, and it's interesting, of course, because you know, as a society, we've we've shifted from the the the, the big meal during the middle of the day to the big meal now being at the end of the day, mm. and and again, that isn't ideal. Um, so, so that's actually doing something with our sleep that can interrupt our sleep. Then I understand. Yes, yes. 
So what about kids then? What should kids eat uh, before we toss them to bed? What should kids eat? Mm. Um, well, again, uh, I think it's just got to be structured because because what we've talked about light as being one of the, the really important ways in setting the clock mm. to the external world. But eating at the same time uh, every day is also helps give you that, that sort of structure. Um, and so uh, I think you can eat most things. Uh, Uh, nothing to excess, not too much sugar, which of course you know causes that big mm. energy rush and that crash. Uh, so um, uh, I'm not a nutritionalist. Uh, I understand, I'm, but but the basic sort of mm. yeah, the basic rule of thumb would be I think intuitive. You know, don't have big heavy meals shortly before you go to bed because uh, it, it, they're going to be more di difficult to, to digest, and the evidence seems to be that it'll promote uh, weight gain. Uh, uh, by eating at the end of the day. Mm. So, so a light meal at the evening is the best one, from what I yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be good. Now, of course, again, it you know practically becomes very difficult to do that because mm. most of us are so busy. You know, we leave work, we leave for work in the morning, and, and probably have almost no breakfast. Uh, then, then have a have a sandwich. Or are you talking about like yourself now, lunch. as well? Talking about yourself now? <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't possibly. I, I, well, it's very interesting. Before I moved to Oxford, I was working. In London and uh, during the week I would work I'd live in London I wouldn't wouldn't go home because it was it was huge pressure of work um, and I would leave I would have no breakfast I would have maybe a sandwich but very rarely it'd be too busy and then I would finish in the lab 10 11 o'clock at night Ooh. and then I'd walk back to the flat And I would realize that I was incredibly hungry. <laughs> and then I would have, um, I'd have, you know, the temptation of a really good fish and chips or you know, <laughs> donut kebab or some terrible, awful thing. And actually, during those five years I did that, my weight absolutely ballooned out. Yeah. Um, so, and I think, you know, it, it all now fits with, with uh, uh, I mean, in mitigation, We didn't quite know it was such a bad idea to do that, but it really is a bad idea now. It's all about habits, right? Have the right to habits. Yeah, I think it's habits, and it's and it's also breaking bad habits. That's mm. the thing. Yeah, extremely important. Uh, can you elaborate something about caffeine? So caffeine is really interesting because I mean, we talked about the sleep pressure, um, and part of the the build up of sleep pressure is is due to a substance that builds up in the brain called adenosine. And adenosine is actually one of the breakdown products of the energy currency within 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 the body, which is ATP. ATP is is broken down to release energy, and one of the byproducts of ATP is adenosine. So so adenosine is a very good marker of biological activity, and so we know that adenosine is very important in promoting sleep because if you infuse it into the brain, it promotes sleep, and what caffeine does is actually interfere with the adenosine receptors in the brain. So, so caffeine genuinely makes you feel um, less tired because it's blocking the ability to detect the, the sleep pressure in the form of increasing levels of adenosine. So we, so we have a good idea, actually, of, of, of how um, adenosine and caffeine are, 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 are important in sleep regulation. Now, melatonin, is really interesting um, and there's a lot of nonsense talked about melatonin um, and it's often called the sleep hormone yeah, which is right. not correct um, so so what we know about melatonin is that the eye regulates the master clock in the brain the master clock in the brain the SCN then talks to the pineal gland 
and the pineal then releases the, the hormone melatonin. And melatonin is a biological marker of the dark. So when it starts to get dark, melatonin rises, it's, it's, it's high during the dark, and in anticipation of morning, melatonin levels start to drop. Now, in, in animals that are seasonally breeding, um, so that use the, the, the increasing and the decreasing day lengths during spring and autumn, they, they are they're using that information to regulate their reproductive system. So, for example, you have the rut of, of, of deer um, in, in, in the autumn months. And that's because the day length is shortening, the night length is increasing, and the duration of melatonin release is also increasing. And it's that melatonin signal that is used by seasonally reproductive mammals to regulate seasonal reproduction. Okay, so, so that's what we know melatonin is doing. Melatonin is also feeding back on the master clock. There are melatonin receptors in the, in the suprachiasmatic nuclei. We don't know precisely what melatonin is doing to the master clock, but it's possibly speeding up the effects of light on the clock. So light comes in during the day, sets the clock, and then melatonin is released at night during the dark, and that probably feeds back and reinforces the melatonin, the, sorry, the, the, the light-dark signal. And so, so there is some good evidence which suggests that if you take melatonin at local bedtime, you can speed up the um, getting over jet lag. So if you're flying from, from Norway to, 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 to the United States, you take three milligrams of melatonin at the local bedtime, uh, you, can, you can get over jet lag more quickly. And it's probably because it's, it's shifting the clock um, uh, uh, by enhancing the effects of light on the clock. Um, so, so, yep, that's what we know about. Um, we also know that in about 70% of people, if you take three milligrams of melatonin, it can, it can reduce the time it, gets, it takes you to get to sleep. So it makes you a little bit sleepy. Um, however, this is why? there are... Uh, sorry? Is it wise to do that? Well... Um, I, uh, I mean, certainly in Europe, you can't buy melatonin over the counter. In the United States, of course, you can go into any any pharmacy and just buy as much melatonin. <laughs> They're the crazy like. over there. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not even going to comment. Um, <laughs> I, I have some very good American friends, um, but they may well be crazy. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, but I, when I was traveling to Australia quite a bit, I did try using melatonin to get rid of my jet lag, and I, and I found it made it worse. Um, so I, I don't use melatonin at all now in any way to uh, interact with, with jet lag. I mean, the thing for jet lag is that there's a very, very clear rule of thumb. If you're traveling west, you seek out light, and that speeds up the rate at which the clock sets uh, it, it, uh, sets to the new time zone. But but traveling east, let's say you were going from you know, Norway to, to to Sydney, then there's a very important thing you need to do, and that's to avoid morning light in the new location, and then seek out afternoon light. Now, why is that? Well, because the effects of light on the body clock are not equal. If you get light at dusk, 
early part of the evening, then that tends to delay the body clock, which means you'll get up later the next day. However, if you get morning light, that tends to advance the body clock, which means you'll get up earlier the next day. And the danger of, of taking going from Europe to, um, uh, to, to a place like Australia is that the body clock, when you arrive in, in Australia, is uh, during, uh, it sinks it, it its dusk, which means you'll expose light and it'll push you further back towards Europe rather than dragging you forward uh, to the new time zone. So that's, that's, the, that's the dilemma uh, about jet lag. And, and so it's, 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 it's the appropriate light exposure um, that I think is important. Mm. Melatonin may help some people, but of course the problem is that often you don't know where the body clock is, mm. um, and therefore it's difficult to know when the best time to take the melatonin is as well. From what I can understand from this talk, Russell, it's all about light actually. I'm 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 sorry to be a light bore, but yes, it is invariably all about light. Like you could accuse me of being biased, um, but but I think many people would agree with me. Yeah, yeah I think it's extremely interesting. And <clears throat> what are some? Of the, I, I believe that a lot of people in uh, in the days that uh, they're working, also from Monday to Friday, they are going to bed at ten uh, eleven, and the weekend comes, they go to bed at eight uh, two p.m. Uh, is there, are there some consequences of changing this sleeping pattern in the weekends? Yeah, it's, a, it's again a very good point. I mean, what many people do is oversleep um, at the weekend uh, to, to try and compensate for the lack of sleep during the week. But of course, that disrupts the, the normal sleep-wake timing. Uh, and that means that it's more difficult to sleep at the appropriate time on the Monday, Tuesday and the Wednesday. So ideally, you should be getting up and going to bed at about the same time during the week and at the weekend. It'll just make it much, much more easily uh, to stabilize the sleep-wake cycle. Yeah, hmm. it's a good point. Uh I mean, now clearly, it's 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 going to be difficult, and the occasional late night is certainly not going to have much of a problem. Mm. I mean, you know, it would be really sad that on a Friday night um, you didn't feel as though you could go out and have a bit of fun, or indeed on a Saturday night. But you know, um, just 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 uh, don't do it every every weekend. There is something I have experienced, uh, Russell. As I said, I started to go to bed at 10 after I heard your podcast back in 2014. And if it happens that I'm going out late at night, for example, and uh, uh, this is maybe at 2 in the two at night, I feel, sli- I feel yep. real sick the next day. I feel a yep. hangover, yep. even if I have to drink any alcohols. I'm extremely sick the next day. Yeah, I think, and, and what, what, what illustrates the point, I mean, we talked about the, um, the master clock in the brain ticking away, and we talked about these billions of individual clock cells, you know, in the liver, the gut, the muscles, and all the rest of it. And one thing uh, that, that's, that's turned out to be very interesting is the concept of internal desynchrony, which is when all, the, all of the clocks are, are not beautifully um, aligned to one another. Now, of course, jet lag going back to jet lag, jet lag is so bad, not because you're simply six hours shifted between, let's say, Norway and Washington. Hmm. It's because the whole circadian network is at a slightly different time. It's a bit like, it's a bit like um, the master clock is a bit like the conductor of an orchestra, telling all the component parts of the orchestra when to perform 
at a very precise time. And jet lag is a bit like the conductor playing at one time and the violins and the trumpets and the, and the violas all playing at a slightly different time. Sounds instead horrible, of a though. beautiful symphony, <laughs> you have a cacophony. Yeah. Um, and so what, what's, what's, what's happening with your, with your, 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 your two o'clock uh, uh, um, uh, late night is that you're probably starting to make the, the clock systems move apart slightly, mm. which, is, which is why you feel so bad. We don't know that for sure, mm. but that's, that could be one explanation for um, uh, why you feel rotten after, after a late night. You're getting some internal desynchrony. Uh, there are some professional athletes listening to this show, and one of them is uh, Sondre Holst Enger. He's a professional cyclist, uh, and he's asking this question. Uh, I wonder if that uh, if it's a myth of sleep before uh, noon, <clears throat> is it better than after that? Or is it the same? Yes. It's just to get enough enough uh, number of hours of sleep. It's a it's a very interesting question. So so the sleep before midnight is better than than sleep after midnight, um, and and it and it it's not clear. Uh, um, but but it does have some resonance with the biology, and we talked about the first half of the sleep cycle is you have deeper sleep and. Uh, it's during the deep sleep that you get memory consolidation and information processing. Whereas the second half of the night, you get less deep sleep and more REM sleep. Which, which, and 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 these days, REM sleep, um, this rapid eye movement sleep, is being associated perhaps with emotional processing. So, so, okay, so sleep, elaborate you know, on that, please. <laughs> Well, well, uh, yeah. I mean, so for example, your ability to sort of uh, uh, align your responses to the world, you know, your emotions mm. um, become uh, better structured um, during REM sleep. That's what the proposal is. Again, the evidence isn't that strong. I mean, you, you know, the, the evidence for deep sleep now as for memory consolidation and information processing is, is pretty good. But why we have dream sleep um, remains unclear. And as I said, it has been trying to sort of work out our emotional responses to the world. Mm. Um, but again, we don't have a huge amount of strong okay. evidence for that. But, but going back to the, to the, to the question, mm. so you could argue that, you know, for the first two to three hours, where we get the most deep sleep could be the most useful versus the, the second uh, and last part of sleep um, after midnight, um, which, which may not be quite as important. I'm not sure if I believe that explanation, but, you know, um, it's one idea of why people have said um, sleep before midnight is better than sleep after midnight. Interesting. Uh, and another question from uh, Stian Angermenvik. He's a world champion in Skyrun. Uh, <clears throat> and he asked this question. There are many who rush to get, get enough sleep before an important race. But I've heard that many say that there isn't the sleep uh, <laughs> the night before, but all the other nights that is important. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, and c certainly um, uh, people who try and force themselves to get to sleep um, invariably don't and, and, and one of the rules of thumb is you do not try and force yourself to get to force yourself to get to sleep but you you just you if, if you if you find you can't get to sleep then don't just lie in bed getting more and more frustrated go and do something keep the lights low listen to music you can do some more of your stretching exercises you can do anything that you've you, you know that relaxes you mm. um, 
So uh, a, a, a good night of sleep, does it improve performance? Well, it, it, the data uh, suggests that it that it does um, not only cognitive performance and one's sense of well-being but also athletic performance has been shown to be improved after um, good sleep hmm. he's also uh, asking the question that uh, after a hard workout he want to go to sleep and if he does that he's uh, having a problem at sleeping at night <laughs> oh that's that's a really important point and and it touches on something that we talked about earlier which is with a lots of exercise of course you raise core body temperature and 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 it'll take you more time to lose that core body temperature and you need to have that have that drop in temperature to to slide you off into sleep and so what you're doing by exercising before you're going to bed is increasing core body temperature and um that's probably delaying your ability to go to sleep it's like having a really really hot bath now you have to be careful it can be good in that it can cause the blood vessels in the skin to dilate, which means you can then shunt blood from the core to the periphery. But if it's a long, long hot bath, it means you raise core body temperature, which means that it's going to be more difficult to lose later on, and that'll delay sleep onset. So, you ha so try not to do things that are going to warm you up too much before you go to bed. You said something uh, earlier on, uh, Russell, about this, um, this sleep pressure. And I know uh, yeah. from my from my experience, I'm having some trouble with this, with this pressure. Are there something I can do to enhance this uh, pressure of sleep? Um, well, yeah, I think it sort of does relate to, to to napping, and of course the use of caffeinated drinks. So you don't, you shouldn't have caffeinated drinks um, after after midday, because um, as I say, they will they will delay sleep onset at night. Mm. But but a lot of people will nap. Now the data here. Um, suggests that a short 20-minute nap um, in the middle of the day uh, can, can enhance your ability to function during the second half of the day. Um, so a short nap of 20 minutes or so. And what that nap is doing is pushing back the sleep pressure. Um, the danger with napping is that you push back the sleep pressure so you're feeling less tired, but that means you will delay sleep onset at night. So you really need to avoid, I, I would, unless it's, Unless it's urgent um, uh, and you're feeling chronically tired, then try not to nap unless, unless it's, as I say, you absolutely need a, a short nap. And if you do need a short na a nap, then please don't make it longer than 20 minutes because then you'd fall into deeper sleep and then the recovery from the deeper sleep after the nap uh, makes, makes uh, it, it almost worth, 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 not worthwhile doing because you feel groggy when you're waking up from that deeper sleep. Um, yeah, so, so enhancing the sleep pressure before you go to bed uh, can be achieved by not blocking those adenosine receptors with caffeinated drinks mm. and, um, uh, and, and, and making sure that the sleep pressure is high by not having a nap earlier during the day. Uh, have you looked into meditation, Russell? I haven't, and it's a really good question, and I should, I should, um, I should be do some more work in this area. I have not. Um, I mean, people have, and and what they suggest is that meditation takes the brain um, into a state that pre prepares it. It makes it very relaxed and therefore much more amenable to sleep. Mm. And so it, it, it makes sense. Um, but but 
I, I haven't worked in this area uh, uh, formally. As I say, the studies that I'm aware of mm. suggest that you relax the brain you, uh, and you're therefore going to slide it more, much more easily into uh, a sleep state. Mm. So meditation can help enormously some people. I mean, in some sense, meditation is, is, is not dissimilar than, than relaxing with a nice piece of music or a, a novel or some other mechanism. Mm. Uh each time I talk to people that are educated as yourself, Russell, it, each time it's it's a uh, it's all, uh, something. Uh, just I, I just realize something, and after talking to now, I realize that light are is the thing. Is that the light and our body is playing uh, a, a symphony, and <clears throat> if we are uh, de- deprived of light, and as uh, the working environment is now, is that. We are going to work yeah. at early in the morning, and uh, we are we're leaving in the evening. It's, it's dark again, so we are very deprived yep. of li- deprived of light. And yes, yes. <laughs> what can we do? <laughs> well, to prove it? Uh, the first point to make is that if you can expose yourself to outside light, this is always good. Mm. Now, it clearly, it depends upon whether it's winter, spring, or summer. Obviously, mm. um, so 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 um, you know, as spring. Uh, starts to arrive then if you can possibly have your breakfast by the window or go outside first thing in the morning this has been shown to to hugely help uh, consolidate the sleep-wake cycle so morning light in particular however in of course Scandinavia for uh, two months of the year depending upon when you are you won't experience very much light Um, and under those circumstances um, light boxes um, and artificial light have been shown to um, I think uh, uh, alleviate some of the problems Mm. Uh, so for example we've we've talked about the importance of light for consolidating sleep-wake but what we haven't really talked about is seasonal affective disorder which of course is you know something that uh, affects Norwegian Scandinavian countries (laughs) very very much now now the question is so, so does supplementary morning light um, have an effect upon seasonal affective disorder? Well, the data, I think, are very clear and that, yes, uh, a half an hour to an hour of bright light from a light box in the morning can have a big effect upon uh, alleviating some of the conditions of, of SAD. Now, is that really light? Or is it a placebo effect? Because after all, 30 to 40% of the efficacy of many treatments are simply placebo. However, um, it looks as though this is not a placebo effect and it's a real effect of light. But the question is, what is the light doing? Is it stabilizing the body clock and stopping that internal desynchrony we were were talking about? Um, Or is it um, light releasing substances within the brain like serotonin which affect mood Mm. and the answer is we don't know Uh, you'll hear a lot of discussion saying oh it's you know it's light stabilizing the body clock or it's light directing uh, directed the the mood centers of the brain but we simply don't know yet Um, but it's but light is having a positive effect in many individuals what are the latest research you're working on now Russell that is, ex- that is exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the really exciting stuff. Well, so, so we so it's it, across a very broad spectrum. I mean, we've established the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute here 
in uh, Oxford. And we have four aims. And, and the first is to understand the fundamental mechanisms whereby sleep and circadian rhythms um, are being generated within, within the brain. The second is to actually define and understand what happens when sleep begins to fall apart. So, you know, we have these terms like insomnia. Mm. But what do we actually mean by insomnia? Is it going to bed late? Is it, is it waking up? Is it fragmented sleep? Uh, and so it's trying to get a genuine mechanistic understanding of what sleep disruption is. The third is to use our understanding of what's going wrong to develop evidence-based interventions, either drugs or light exposure or other approaches to try and stabilize sleep-wake uh, in, in, in a, a whole broad variety of individuals. And that could be everything from teenagers. That might just be good education and advice. It might be in schizophrenia where sleep is appalling and smashed to bits. It might be in dementia. So it's trying to develop new approaches to stabilize sleep-wake in those different groups. The, and the fourth aim, yeah, yeah. and the fourth aim is, yeah, and the fourth aim is to uh, disseminate this information as widely uh, as possible. And that's, of course, at one end, our healthcare professionals in a five-year training. Most doctors will only have one lecture about sleep. No, um, no, and no, yet, no, 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 no. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, still, uh, it, it, the, and that lecture will be about EEG, and it will not be about the sorts of things we've been discussing. And so we've developed the first fully online sleep medicine uh, program here in Oxford, uh, whereby you can uh, register and, and have download the lectures when it's convenient for you, okay. um, and then organize tutorials you know, via Skype uh, with, with our experts here. And so hopefully we can start to supplement um, the lack of information about sleep to our healthcare professionals. Who can take that Now, course, uh, Russell? I'm sorry? Who can take that course? Um, anybody, um, as long as they um, uh, have the appropriate background in, in biology. It doesn't mean that you've necessarily got to have a degree, but you've got to, if it's going to be a master's degree, you have to have a, a, an equivalent sort of degree type qualification. Okay. Um, and so we've got our first set of enrollment, and I think we've got, uh, I think, 16 people around the world um, have started, and we've Uh, got uh, a, a sort of a lot, a lot of people wanting to join uh, next year as well. So it's, it's, it, we've, we've, we've begun to try and get the information out there. So, I mean, what I'm doing most of my time is trying to understand the fundamental mechanisms. And I think the most exciting research for us has been recently, well, how, how does light from these new receptors, these photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, change the patterns of gene expression, which in then Turn, which in turn then change our patterns of behavior. How does, how does, how does genes how, and, and their activity give rise to behavior? And we're getting a really exciting understanding of, of what light is doing to the clockwork. So, so for example, you know, we, we ask the question, why isn't light more effective at shifting the clock? Why does it take a day for every time zone you've crossed before the clock locks on to the new light-dark cycle? Um, and we've so, so, so in a sense, what's the reason for jet lag? And we discovered that there's a protein um, which acts as a break on the clockwork. So light starts to shift the clock. This protein kicks in and doesn't let it shift very much. 
And when you take this protein away and you, um, uh, you, you shift the light-dark cycle, uh, the mouse will shift uh, immediately to the new light-dark cycle. So we're, we're getting some really exciting new data on, on how um, light is interacting with, with, the, with, with the molecular systems in the brain that regulate internal time. So, yeah, there's a lot going on uh, across the spectrum, working with my friends in ophthalmology to get evidence-based guidelines, um, asking the question, to what extent do the various uh, diseases of the eye affect sleep-wake timing, and what advice can we give to our clinical practitioners ab about that? Uh, new therapeutics for uh, mental illness, and I'm very keen to, to expand our studies uh, to uh, uh, dementia, uh, healthy aging. You know why? Why does sleep begin to fall apart as we age? You know what's the basis for it? This is the most common uh, complaint of of the aging community. What and do you think? Yeah, very little. What idea. do you think? Well, w again, sorry to come back to light. As you know, I am a light bore. Um, <laughs> oh yes, you are. <laughs> but but we do know from <laughs> we do know from mouse studies that the light becomes less effective as shifting the clock um, in aged mice. And it may well be that for reasons, again, we don't understand, that, that the clock starts to drift and become less robust because there's, for some reason, a less strong light signal. Um, and so that, that's part of it. But that, that, that will be only one, one of, of many different um, uh, components that are, that are changing as we age. But it will be good to, to try and get some, uh, again, understanding of the mechanisms so we can use that understanding to develop therapeutics to improve the quality of life of, you know, huge numbers of people across the planet. You're, you're saying something about dementia. Uh, uh, are uh, the lack of sleep and dementia correlated? Well, well, what's interesting, and we have some studies on this, and, and others have done some some work in this area, is that we looked at um, the sleep-wake patterns of individuals who have been just diagnosed with uh, dementia, and the sleep-wake patterns of those individuals are absolutely terrible. And in fact, sleep-wake patterns start to fall apart um, way before a clinical. Um, uh, uh, um, a diagnosis of, of dementia. And so there seems to be some very interesting relationship between dementia and sleep disruption. And indeed, the primary reason why a family will commit uh, an aged um, parent to a nursing home, for example, is not because they're incoherent or because the communication systems have broken down. It's because the aged parent will be wandering around in the middle of the night waking people up and maybe terrifying the grandchildren. <laughs> um, and if one could stabilize sleep-wake in, in dementia and delay the point at which you then institutionalize those individuals, it not only would be better for the family, uh, but also have a big impact upon the cost of healthcare uh, across the healthcare systems. So again, I think a very interesting area for research is the relationship between sleep disruption in dementia and trying to find ways, like we've been working in schizophrenia, to try and stabilize sleep-wake in those individuals. Does this mean, Russell, that a lot of our unconscious behavior, our habits then, uh, are uh, in some way correla correlated to our sleep pattern and our circadian rhythm? <clears throat> yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a good example of that would be um, our unconscious behaviors, our, our, our inclination to be impulsive, uh, 
mm. and lacking empathy. Um, so we, you know, we all like to, to sort of work with others, and we all like to think that our decisions are made upon due reflection of consequences. Mm. But what sleep deprivation will do is rapidly take away that uh, empathy and our ability to interact with others, and indeed our ability to be reflective of the consequences of our actions. So yes, indeed, sleep has a big effect upon our subconscious activities. Thank you so much for your time, Russell. I've been really educated in this podcast, and <clears throat> and, and I hope that Norwegians <laughs> and others listening to, to this one understand that sleep is extremely important. And, and and light as well. well. <laughs> <laughs> It's been great fun, and thank you for, for for having the opportunity of talking to you. I've enjoyed it enormously. Thank you so much for your time, Russell. Okay, take care. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye.